I think people would pay for <laughs> someone to break up with their financial advisor for them, to bring <laughs> them on to, um, to hopefully find a, a better financial advisor. Is that an add-on service that you, you will offer to consumers? I haven't thought about that, <laughs> but there is always text. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In this yeah. modern age, you know, breaking up sometimes you do it by tax. Yeah, because you can't just ghost them, right? If you if you're you know if you're on a percentage of assets model and you ghost your advisor, they're still going to get paid for doing nothing if you stop contacting. <laughs> Welcome to the Mostly Money Podcast with your host Preet Banerjee. This is Mostly Money, and I am your host, Preet Banerjee, and on the show today, I'll be speaking with Saul Amos about AdvisorSavvy.com, which is a website that is designed to connect consumers with the right financial advisor for them. And as usual, before we get started, I wanted to thank the listeners who've left ratings on Apple Podcasts. And a little reminder to you, if you would be so kind as to do the same, I would greatly appreciate it. And uh, let's get right on to today's guest. Um, Saul, welcome to the show. Thanks, Preet. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for stopping by. Um, so as a point of disclosure, we were talking a little bit before the podcast started. Um, I should disclose how you and I know each other because we've had a business yep. relationship in the past. Um, so let me start with your bio and then I'll get the, uh, the disclosure out of the way. So Saul Amos is the founder of AdvisorSavvy.com, a website that is designed to help connect people with financial advisors that are right for them. He's an entrepreneur and proven marketing and business development executive who's built, grown and transformed marketing organizations, including startups and large global corporations. He spent close to a decade supporting advisors across the U.S., Canada, and Hong Kong, developing and honing their practice using consumer insight and feedback. Specifically, he led the implementation of the Net Promoter Score across CIBC Wealth Management, as well as launching BMO Private Bank Brand in Canada, Asia, and the U.S. that resulted in a number of awards. So um, thanks again for coming on the show, and let's start with our disclaimer, and that was when you were at CIBC Wealth Management. So um, why don't you tell me how that all started? Because I don't know, like I just got a call and said, hey, you want to do this thing? So tell Yeah, me. well, it's always nice when you get those calls out of the blue to work, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we, um, when I was at, it was actually Bank of Montreal, and we were looking for someone actually to run our financial fluency courses for the kids of our clients. We came across your name and we did some research on you. We found that you might be the best approach to the clients at that time to talk financial fluency. And so we ended up hiring you to do some classes for the client, uh, for the children of our clients across Canada. Yeah. And that was a lot of fun. I had so much fun, um, <laughs> with, with those kids and it was such a huge diversity of financial literacy levels, uh, right. across the kids. And there's some, uh, kids of executives at the bank, kids whose parents were not involved in the financial services at all. And there was no sort of correlation between, you know, what their parents did and how much financial literacy uh, right. that their kids had. It was, it was fascinating. And we did that for a couple of years. So point of disclosure, Saul and I have had a working relationship in the past, but we're here to talk about your new venture. Yep. And a lot of this is formed based off your um, insights into the industry, because right. you basically worked with a lot of financial advisors in some really big institutions. So can you tell us a little bit about your your background and what you did and how you worked with financial advisors in those institutions? Yeah, for sure, Preet. My role at uh, both Bank of Montreal and CIBC was primarily to measure client feedback with advisors. 
And what I did was measure the client feedback that came back in. So I'd actually literally read thousands of client testimonials. And my role was specifically to package up those insights and help advisors find blind spots in their practice. And then also package that information up and work with executives for honing their resources going into the next fiscal year. So we did that both at uh, Bank of Montreal and CIBC. In addition to that, secondary to that was also bringing the different groups together under one banner. And that's, we talked about bringing the, uh, the private bank brand in the U.S. and Canada and Hong Kong. So which channels did you work um, with in terms of the financial advisors? Because, you know, the big five, they all have multiple levels. You know, oh, yes, up. plenty. So you worked with them all, like from branch all the way up to private client? So primarily I worked on the wealth side. Mm-hmm. So I worked with financial planners in the wealth group, also brokers. Um, th- those are primary both at Bank of Montreal and CIBC. Okay. Yeah. And with the, the, the main sort of banks in Canada, can you break down for people, what are the different channels of advice? Like if you go and say, hey, I right. need some financial advice, what are all the different possible options based on you know, assets or needs or whatever? What, what are they basically like across the big five? Yeah, it really depends on the big five because a lot of them have different solutions. So for instance, CIBC obviously has the retail channel and then they have um, Imperial Service, which is kind of a mass affluent product, which offers advice at that level as well, which is kind of the first step. And then from there, it goes into the what they call the private wealth space. And within the private wealth space, they'll have the financial planners, they'll have the brokers, and then usually um, the high-end investment people. And when we talk about these different market demographics, yeah. like mass market, mass affluent, uh, private wealth, or uh, high net worth, what are those different demographics and what are what is the tiering for them? Is it basically like investable assets or is it some other metric? Yeah, again, it depends, right? It's, it's interesting because um, in Canada, they might consider uh, high net worth a uh, million and above. Where another institution might be might consider 1.5 million and above their high net worth, and then underneath that they would have uh, what they call the mass affluent. So those are the two kind, but it's usually by asset level. Okay, and mass affluent is basically people who are um, represent the bulk of the wealth clients in terms of number. Yeah, in terms of pure number, for sure. Right. And yeah. then, like, do you have a, an idea as to, this is like more for my curiosity more than anything <laughs> right. else, but. <laughs> but do you trying to get the inside scoop on yeah, this. Yeah, totally. Um, and so, um, in terms of the numbers, like, uh, you know, is it five to one, 10 to one of mass affluent to high net worth? What's the ratio? Yeah, I'd, I'd have to guess, um, but I would say you're probably close on the five to one mm-hmm. in terms of the mass affluent versus the high net worth. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the, when you look at the total quantity versus the wealth, the wealth, a large portion of that wealth is held with that small group. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, that's great. You've, uh, thank you for indulging me on my, <laughs> my own sort of curiosity on stuff like that. But and it also changes by country too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not surprised. Okay. So let's talk about advisor savvy. So you've left Bay Street and set up your own right company. And again, this is... I think based on a lot of your insights, having basically done this for big institutions, you've got, you had access to a lot of insight about what people like, what they don't like. You probably have a lot of people in your network who are financial advisors. And I think one of the reasons why a service like this 
has existed and why other services have tried to do something like this is because there's huge amounts of variation in the quality of financial advice that's out there. Is that the crux of the problem in your eyes? Yeah, the crux is exactly how you positioned it, which is there are some fantastic advisors out there and there are some not so great advisors. And it's really difficult for the consumer to be able to find those great advisors. And in my history of working with both those institutions, and especially with the role, I realized that there are some amazing advisors out there, but uh, consumers just can't find them. Right. And so when I was looking at that as a problem, um, I said, what can I create that would help bring those great advisors to the top and so that consumers could easily find them? Mm-hmm. And in my mind, like this has been a tough problem, a tough nut to right. crack. Part of the reason is if you're a consumer and you need financial advice, which I think is the majority of people will need to work with someone. There's a lot of people who can do it themselves, and that's great, but I think the majority of people will need to work with someone. You're basically saying, I don't know enough to sort of, or I don't have the time to manage everything on myself. I need to find someone. But how do you know that the person that you're talking to or sitting from across the table is good? Because a large part of being a financial advisor is sales, right? And it's coming across well and saying all the right things. And it's hard to sort of figure out, well, are they just saying good things or are they actually going to be a good financial advisor as well? So how do you how do you vet the advisors who are on? Actually, you know what? Let's take a step back. Explain how advisor savvy works. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself. That's no problem. So on the consumer side, advisor savvy, actually, we bring those advisors to the consumer. And one of the things that we found in, in the research that I'd done was consumers don't really have the option to kind of filter or sort or exactly what you're saying, which is be able to find that right advisor. And so advisor, ha- advisor savvy has the ability to filter and sort different advisors in four categories. So uh, financial coaches, financial advisors, financial planners, and then also on the insurance side. And so they're able to sort it by their ratings. They're able to sort it by years in business. Because I think definitely you'd want an advisor who's been through 2008. Right. <laughs> right. So you, that's definitely one of the criteria. Um, you're also able to sort them by language. So if, you're, if your primary language is not French or English, you'd probably want an advisor who speaks your primary language, which may not be those two. Um, so you're able to sort by those criteria in addition to specialties. Because what I'm finding is a lot of advisors now are specializing in certain life events with consumers. It might be uh, sep- newly separated. It might be a death in the family. So we, we offer that to advisors to be able to highlight some of their specialties. And then the flip side, the consumer can actually look for that specialty. So they can actually find an advisor who might specialize in what they need. And how would a financial consumer find you? Because uh, here, let me let yep. me um, sort of position this. In my mind, the average financial consumer doesn't spend a lot of time looking for the right advisor for them. <laughs> it is, um, you know, a cousin in the family who started up with some place and they said, oh, you know, as part of my training, I got to sit down with you and give you my sales pitch and take right. all your assets. Um, or it's, you know, a referral. And uh, I find that a lot of people refer advisors not necessarily because they know that they're a good advisor. They just aren't unhappy with them. And, and someone being unhappy or someone not being unhappy with a financial advisor is not a high enough bar, right? right? So a lot of people just like to refer people because you want to be 
seen as useful to your friends or whatever. Right. So I've got a guy. And everyone says, I've got a person. And the average consumer, again, I don't know if they spend a lot of time, as much as they should anyways, considering who should manage their financial affairs. So that's a big responsibility. So how how are you going about making yourself known to consumers so that this is something they should consider is to, you know, try and screen for their advisor right. as opposed to just, you know, walking in and saying, hey, I, I need to uh, get a car loan. And they end up with that and, you know, a mortgage <laughs> and, a, and a credit card and a credit card and all that. Right. And then you want to make sure that they're getting good advice. How do you do that? Right. I find it a shame, actually, because um, considering most people spend their lives earning an income and they don't spend enough time, I think, looking for that right financial advisor to help guide them in that path with, you know, if they're working 40, 50 hours a week. Um, I find it I find it odd that they won't spend the time in researching the right financial advisor for them. And so they'll be able to find us online. So we, the site is heavily uh, SEO searchable. So mm-hmm. Google, if, if somebody's uh, going online and they want to look for a new advisor and they're searching for advisor, they will find us that way. And also highlighting different specialties that uh, our advisors have on the site that will also be through Google search. So we're working heavily online and we know that uh, 80% of the search has happened with Google and mm-hmm. that's where people will generally start. Now, to your point about referrals, I am aware that that happens. That's generally what happens yeah. is somebody will be complaining about their advisor or they'll need an advisor and they'll go to a friend. Advisor Savvy works in that if that referral happens, which is great, I think that's that's an important relationship that someone has with uh, a colleague or a friend. Um, but Advisor Savvy could also work that they might want to find more information about that referral and they may want two others. So to be able to have a handful, and I think that's an important process of interviewing the financial advisor to understand if there's a fit there with the advisor and with yourself. That's a, that's a good point. Let's talk about um, what consumers should be asking when they're right. thinking about hiring a new financial advisor or a financial advisor for the first time. So what are the things they should be asking? Good question. They, um, they should be asking what, um, what their accreditation is. So how, how long, like what accreditation they have. Are they a certified financial planner? Or are they CFA or so on? Um, they should ask about how long they've been doing this. Um, some, you know, are fairly new. So I think that's open. I also think it's important that the client or the, the consumer asks, how many clients do you have that are like me in my situation? And that will tell you a lot about what the advisor is used to doing and working within that time for client base. So again, understanding how many years they've been in the business, understanding how they've been certified and understanding what their client makeups look up of their current portfolio. Were you with the banks when CRM2 rolled out? Yes. Okay, so let's talk about this. <laughs> let's talk about... <laughs> I'm not an expert. Right. No, no, that's fine. That's fine. But I'm sure you've heard things. Yes, um, <laughs> of course I have. So um, for those who are not as familiar with what CRM2, it stands for... God, what does it stand for? Client Relationship Model Phase 2. Yeah. Um, In the finance industry, we always have to have ac- acronyms, right? Yeah, to there's an acronym everything. for everything. And I think there's even an acronym for, there's an acronym for everything. Uh, (laughs) um, But essentially what this regulation required was firms, dealerships had to provide a printed statement that disclosed the cost of distributing products, but not the cost of the products themselves. So this actually became a bit of a, 
Um, I'd say it was kind of a, a, a screwed up rollout um, yep. because it caused more confusion than it cleared up people's senses of what they were paying for advice. There's a lot of situations where you would see your CRM2 report, which was mandated to be you know given to you, and the cost shown there was half of your actual total cost. Yes. And that was, it was just awful. So what I wanted to ask you about is when CRM2 was being talked about, when they said, all right, it's going to institute in a year or two, everyone started to talk about even more about compensation models, product costs, advice costs. So this became a hot button issue for, I would say, 10%, that might be generous, 10% of the population. Right. In the industry, everyone was talking about it. People were worried. People thought this is great and everything in between. When I talk to people who actually deal with financial advisors and people who are outside the bubble, who are not in the financial services, they have no idea what CRM2 is. (laughs) They had no idea, half of them, that they're getting this new disclosures about what they're paying because they don't open their statements. They don't look at this stuff anyways. Right. But- Costs are important. And so is, you know, the other side of the equation, which is what are you getting for that? My own take, it's when you take a look at the Canadian landscape, there's not enough consensus on a lot of the jargon that we have. And we have tons of jargon to begin with. So my own personal take that um, is kind of this little hill that I'm going to die on one day (laughs) is um, commissions. I don't think anyone would debate this. Commissions only ever generate or originate from a product, Right. right? They come from a product. Yep. A fee is supposed to originate from the client. So if you're paying for a percentage of assets, the fee comes from the client independent of the product. So it could be mutual fund X, ETF Y, individual stocks, whatever, but that cost comes from the client independent of the product. And beyond that, where the real confusion lies, and I still see it today, I still see uh, a lot of people who are very knowledgeable in the financial services, I think, use these terms incorrectly, is when they say fee only versus fee for service. So from what I've seen in other jurisdictions around the world, is that if you are fee only, all that means is that all your compensation only comes from fees. Right. And there are different types of fees. Yeah. You could have a percentage of asset fee. Um, you could have a flat fee if yeah. you're advice only. And so as long as you're only charging fees, you would be fee only. In Canada, there's this huge confusion I found where if you say someone is fee only, I would say the majority of people who have heard that before would think that means you pay by the hour or it's advice only. And that is not true, uh, at least yeah. not around the world. But if you talk to regulators, uh, different uh, association bodies, they all say it's not enshrined anywhere um, in regulations what that yeah. term means. And so it's very ambiguous. And I know I know that there are some, unfortunately, some advisors that say, yeah, I'm fee only. Knowing that the person, when they read about fee only in the media and whatnot, um, they see it as this sort of elevated standard. Um, yeah. And the advisor isn't actually delivering what they think think the client thinks that they're getting anyways that's my little uh, bone of contention and the Uh, problem is is if we don't really define it for the consumer they fear it yeah and they fear that they can't engage with an advisor because the fees might be too high and i think that's a problem is what we're seeing and one of the reasons i developed advisor savvy was for those consumers who are a bit younger and maybe feel that they can't have an advisor who can help them guide with them in the early days of their uh, building wealth. Right. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so just sort of to, to button up that topic on, you know, terminology and whatnot, if the industry can't even get 
these phrases right, how is a consumer supposed to make heads or tails of, you know, what's been thrown at them? And this reminds me of, you know, talking about consumer confusion. Do you remember that there was that mystery shopping exercise a couple of years ago? The, I think it was the OSC and the CSA. Oh, so yes. The Ontario Securities Commission <laughs> and the Canadian Securities Administrators yeah. put on this mystery shopping exercise. And they sent people out to, I think in total, there's 108 different mystery shops, quote unquote, that they call them. And of those 108 visits, 88 were sort of successful by definition of giving them enough data to include in their study. So out of 88 different mystery shopping visits, they found 48 different titles used by financial advisors, which is crazy, right? I mean, it should just be you are either a financial advisor or not, right? Yep. It's either a financial advisor or salesperson. To me, that's the only sort of delineation. And I think a lot of people can make a, a point for planner, financial planner versus financial advisor. But I right. think, you know, unless you're providing financial planning, everything else is sales. Um, anyways, so you can see I'm quite passionate about this stuff. I've been... Oh, I mean, <laughs> me as well. And it's, you know, when you, even when when you work within the industry, there's titles, there's what they call the marketing title. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then there's the internal where you sit on the pecking order within the organizations. Right. And so that you'll find most people will position their marketing title on their business card. Right. Which creates more confusion yeah. for the consumer. Yeah. Which is, um, which was the firm that called everyone uh, a first vice president? Was that CIBC? I can't remember. It was a long time ago, but um, I forget. And again, it was more of a marketing title. I was like, really? There's like a thousand first vice presidents or whatever. I forget which firm it was, but I remember that was a title. Um, Yeah, but that's the marketing thing. All right, so uh, consumers, they can screen. You're thinking about um, a different way that they can screen on on costs and compensation models. I should mention the one thing about fees is when I was doing the initial research for Advisor Savvy is I did reach out to a lot of consumers and ask for their position on how they'd want it, how they'd want to look at advisors. And those were the three that they came up with. And so when dealing with the consumer, you really have to work at their level in terms of how they want to look at advisors. Mm -hmm. And then as we progress, we'll start refining and defining those fees. And But there didn't seem to be that minimum understanding with the consumer in terms of fee, which is unfortunate because we have a huge industry and consumers can't seem to get over how people are paid in the finance industry. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. So I'm thinking that this is an opportunity for you is um, because I know that on your site, you've got a blog. Um, so you've got, you know, content that you're dripping yep. out, which is, you know, standard these days, you launch a site, you got to have a blog, you have your lead magnets, you sign people up and get right. them interested in all that stuff. I think what would be a great, uh, sort of offering to, to attract people would be sort of these explainers about here's what all these terms mean. Here's what you should be looking for. I know you've got some of that stuff, but really building out like 
um, you know, what it is that people should be looking for and what are the things that they should be looking out for? Because right. again, I think we're aligned in that there are a lot of great advisors. There's a lot of not so great advisors yeah. out there. We really have to save people from the not so great advisors out there because they, in some cases, do a lot of damage. But I think just if I can, yeah, please. I think just on that point, it's, uh, it's important that part of our site was also d- designed around um, helping the consumer to be more confident in their ability to choose the right advisor. I mean, the site is, is about connecting advisors and consumers, but we do offer the ability for consumers to gain confidence in making the right choice. So we've broken it out in terms of uh, where they might be in their life stage and who they might consider using. And then one of the other tools uh, we have is also, what do all those certifications mean? So all of those acronyms that you see after the advisor's name, what do they actually mean? Right. So we do provide that, which I think is another industry, you know, red herring for consumers when they see an advisor and they see, which is great. It just shows their contribution to, you know, honing their craft, but a consumer needs to understand what all that means. Yeah, again, you know, the more I think about this, other great resources to help financial consumers have more confidence in mm-hmm. their relationships is a great goal in and of itself. Based on your experience, you know, after the initial honeymoon period where there's initially, there can be a lot of work done. It's very high touch because if you're working with a planner, you have to go through the financial planning process, which yeah. can be pretty laborious, right? You, you come in, you sit down and figure out all the things that you have, figure out all your goals, and then you craft a plan to sort of, you know, get from A right. to B and uh, mitigate risks and all this stuff. And that's that's high touch because once you create the plan, then you got to implement it and execute and all that stuff. And then after that, sometimes there's a tendency for advisors to put their feet up and go on cruise control with certain relationships, right? Yeah. And that's, I think sometimes it can be a trap for advisors because they're busy servicing new clients and they've got clients who are kind of like trained. What what advice do you have for people about uh, how they can continue to get good value from an advisor after the honeymoon period? It's a good question. And I think the consumers have to take a more proactive role with their advisors. So I think if they're feeling that, you know, I haven't gotten a call from my advisor in a while, I think it's important for the consumer to reach out to their advisor and not just wait for that call. Because right. there are some advisors who feel that, They've managed to figure out what the contact strategy is for their client base, and it might not fit all consumers. And so I think it's important for the consumer to be proactive and reach out. And the advisor is there to provide advice. And so the consumer, if they're if they're debating on a purchase, if they're debating on a situation, they should reach out to that advisor. And I think that's part of the process is they might just pigeonhole the advisor for one thing when the advisor probably has a wealth of knowledge in a whole bunch of areas. And if they, if they don't, I think that they're well suited to find the resources to support the consumer. Right. Um, are Canadians too Canadian about um, what they expect <laughs> out of their professional relationships? And what I'm getting at is one of the things that I hear time and time again is that there are many clients who are afraid to break up with their current advisor, no matter how bad they are, um, because they just want to avoid confrontation, maybe, um, or they don't have the motivation to maybe switch. And so presumably, there are some people who feel like they're not getting good value. Maybe they've got one of the duds. And they want to find or try to find a good advisor. 
And uh, I think, you know, I think people would pay for <laughs> someone to break up with their financial advisor for them, to bring <laughs> them on good. to um, to hopefully find a, a better financial advisor. Is that an add-on service that you, you will offer to consumers? I haven't thought about that, <laughs> but there is always text. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In this yeah. modern age, you know, breaking up, sometimes you do it by text. Yeah. Because you can't just ghost them, right? If, you, if you're, you know, if you're on a percentage of assets model and you ghost your advisor, they're still going to get paid for doing nothing if you stop contacting well, them. Well, <laughs> can I tell you a funny story about that? Please. In uh, financial institutions, one thing they look at, one of their metrics is uh, account closings. So what is our, they call it an attrition rate, yeah. you know, how many accounts closed. And, you know, I always, I always have this innate curiosity because, you know, every year you come to the table and they say, we're running at about the same level of account closings as last year, but profitability has dropped. And so I always wondered that because everyone would pat themselves on the back for having low account closures. So we actually did some analytics on it. What we found were people weren't actually leaving. What they were doing is they were draining their account to the bare minimums. And we actually saw it on a graph. We did a study of about a thousand clients. And you could see after that honeymoon phase, mm -hmm. if the advisor didn't maintain the contact and meet the expectation of what they set up with the consumer, the consumer for about six years after would drop their account like between 10 and 15% would just automatically withdraw certain amounts, but never close the account. <laughs> Always leave just a little of the minimum in the account, but they would bring it over to another money manager. Right. And so from an optics perspective inside the industry, everybody was patting them on the back, but the money was flowing out the back door. Right. Wow, that's very interesting. And I think when you, you talk to, sorry, to your point about uh, when you, I would actively go out to those consumers who had, we'd notice who fired off a flag saying they were leaving because we saw those uh, incremental drops in their account. It was just because uh, the advisor had set up a certain expectation at the beginning, that honeymoon phase, and the consumer was happy to bring in the money at the beginning, but they, but that, that expectation wasn't lived up to going forward. And so as soon as the consumer found out about that, they just started you know, taking a little bit out of their account, but never addressing the conflict of breaking up with their advisor. Interesting. Um, I recently had a friend of mine, uh, Dr. Leanne Davey, on the podcast, and um, she just launched this new book called The Good Fight. Yeah. And it was all about how you can have productive conflict and how that can actually yeah. be really good for a relationship, you know, financial advice relationship, personal relationship, whatever. Like all conflict doesn't have to be nasty. Um, but if you're upset or your expectations aren't being met, there's a productive way to sort of bring right. that up and, and discuss that. And I found that, um, you know, I think a lot of financial advisors or any advice professionals would actually prefer that, you know, if someone is uh, unhappy or their expectations are being met, to bring it up. As uncomfortable as it might seem, the yep. more you do it, the more you get used to it. But you can't fix a problem unless you know that there's a problem. Right. And in any case, that I think is more on the advisor. I think they have to probe deeper and make sure that their clients are, yeah. are happy and that they're providing uh, value. But um, I do think that there's money in a service to help people break up with their advisors. It's, uh, I think people would actually pay money for that. I'll think about that as an add-on <laughs> for the next version too. Totally, totally. I, I guarantee you would uh, you would get sales. One, one thing we had actually coached some advisors on was um, the idea of what we used to call a relationship timeout which was, 
you know, not going through your scripted call in terms of with the, the client, but saying, hey, listen, I just want to see if everything's okay. I want to make sure that I'm delivering, my team's delivering to everything that we've talked about in the past. And that kind of relationship time out with the consumer gives opens the door for the con- consumer to say, hey, listen, I wasn't happy because of X, Y. And I think that gives the advisor a good opportunity to come back and fix it if they're willing. Yeah, no, I think that's that's great advice. I think anyone who's <clears throat> providing service to people should, you know, periodically <laughs> check in with their customers and, you know, measure what uh, what their experiences are and, and in order to improve what they're delivering. So I, I, to me, that just makes sense. I did, I did remember this story of working with an advisor who I said, you know, you need to be out there and have regular contact with some of your clients because that's the expectation. And, he, and this advisor said, well, you know, I just called someone the other day. They were on overdraft. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, you know, proactively contacting them about their overdraft is great. However, you may want to look at other <laughs> reasons to contact them. I, uh, I heard this story. Um, this is just <laughs> the last thing I'll say about, uh, you know, making sure you're getting good value for your money. Some client had, you know, assets with, I forget what firm it was. And... Um, they hadn't reached out to their advisor. Mm-hmm. They always waited for a call and uh, the call stopped and, you know, years go by. And then um, they decide to call to the firm to say, hey, I, you know, where's my advisor? I lost their contact info. And the response was, <laughs> Doug, Doug's been dead for six years. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> so it's been paying for six years and uh, hadn't been getting any service. And that's why I think. You know, people really need to be more proactive with monitoring, not only, you know, as an advisor, but as a consumer, what you're getting out of that relationship, um, if that's the route you choose to go down. I'm going to have to remember that story. <laughs> Doug's been dead for six years. Um, okay, let's let's change gears a little bit. Yeah. And let's talk about ad- advisor savvy from the advisor's perspective. Right. So there's a lot of financial advisors who listen to this podcast as well. And so they'd be very interested in seeing, you know, should I be using advisor savvy or not? So what is your pitch to advisors who are thinking about um, getting listed on advisor savvy? And before you answer that, is every advisor going to be listed on advisor savvy or do you have to apply to be listed on? How does that work? Yeah. So before an advisor can come and there's actually three options for them to come on board. And when they come on board, we actually do a check on their background in terms of their accreditation, whether they're in a disciplinary. So we try to get all the advisors on board who are not in disciplinary action or things like that and are in good standing. So there is that process that we go through. The benefit for the advisor is the ability to showcase their practice in a different way than they'd have before. Because to your point, there are banks out there, there are institutions that will say that will have a part of their website that will be find my advisor, you know, but the, the benefit of advisor savvy for the consumer or for the advisor is the ability to highlight things that may not, they may not be able to showcase in other areas. So they may want to showcase their specialties. So we have about 15 different specialties. They may want to highlight that they speak a different language. Um, and the ability to do the profile is very simple and it highlights where you're licensed, what provinces you're licensed, what certifications, what your specialties are. But it also allows the advisor to do updates to that profile wherever they are, whether it's they can do it by their mobile phone, they can do it by their desktop. Um, and then we're working on different features in the, in the future for the advisor. But 
it's a, it's a platform for them to showcase their practice in a different way. And we will be driving uh, probably about 50,000 consumers a month to the site. So it's also the ability to tra- attract new prospects. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You hear a lot about supply chains these days, because if the past couple years have taught us anything, it's that an efficient, well-managed supply chain is absolutely critical to keeping businesses successful and consumers happy. I'm Will Haywood, and I host a podcast called All Business, No Boundaries, where we talk about supply chains, how they work, what happens when they don't, and the innovations that are redefining what's possible in the world of logistics. Join me for insightful interviews with thought leaders and industry experts. We discuss how optimizing supply chains can break down the barriers that are holding businesses back. That's All Business, No Boundaries by DHL Supply Chain. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And so if I'm um, a consumer and I'm looking for a financial advisor on Advisor Savvy, and I come across a number of profiles that sort of fit yeah. my screen that I've looked for. Is there some kind of like a rating system that is in place for advisors or is it just uh, an advisor sort of saying, here's what I offer? <laughs> That's a good question. And you know, it's a funny thing because there is a rating system on it and we did develop a rating system um, for a couple of reasons. But one is having what we discussed uh, earlier is I do think there's some fantastic advisors out there, and I've read thousands of client testimonials. And I was looking for the way that those testimonials could get out to other consumers. And consumers could read feedback from current clients because there didn't seem to be an avenue for consumers to be able to ask existing clients, what do you think, other than maybe through a referral. Mm -hmm. And so we developed a rating rating system that wasn't just one rating, like how would you rate your advisor from one to five? Because I realized in my experience that the markets had a big impact on that rating. Right. So if the markets are crap, chances are that advisor would get rated not as high as they should. And I saw this consistently over my 10 years as you would see advisor ratings drop almost in correlation with the marketplace. Mm-hmm. So what we did is we uh, devised a rating system that rated um, the advisors on contact. So whether the current client felt that they were getting enough contact on fees, performance, uh, satisfaction, um, and then that, they, that the advisor had their best interests in mind, all of those roll up to an overall score. So even if the markets are doing well, the advisor has more than a better shot of getting a high rating. And when you say when the advisor has their best interests in mind, is that um, is that like a clearly delineated they are fiduciary or I feel like they're doing good for me? Yeah, it's more of a I feel that they're doing it. Okay. okay, that they have my best interests in mind. The two there that, that are most important when I was looking at correlation between satisfaction with a consumer and advisor is contact and uh, has my best interest in mind. So if an advisor scored high on those two, chances are that relationship with the consumer would last infinitely more longer than the average consumer. Right, okay. And so this kind of goes back, I'm gonna push back a little bit here. Of course. Um, This kind of goes back to the marketing aspect of advisors. Like how do you know you've got a great advisor versus someone who sounds like they could be a great advisor? So if you are in that latter category and you've got someone who's really slick, you're going to think, yeah, this guy's 
this person is great. They're taking great care of me. They must be acting in my best interest. Whereas the, uh, you know, different types of licenses, some of them require uh, advisors to act as a fiduciary mm-hmm. and they're legally required to act in the best interest of the client. And the portfolio managers, generally speaking, um, if you're licensed as a portfolio manager, you have to act as a fiduciary. But that's not always the case for other advisors. They have this suitability standard. Right. And this is a tough one because, you know, the industry is going to change overnight. As much as, you know, a lot of people would like to see a fiduciary uh, standard being introduced across the board, I don't see it happening anytime soon. On the other hand, there are a lot of people who are influenced by commissions, different products pay different money. And so that can guide their uh, recommendations. And there are also people who are, I'll take a step back again. There are a lot of people in the industry who are well-intentioned and they think that they're going to always do what's in the best interest of their clients, but they are slightly influenced by commissions. It's a problem that's really tough to crack. So in the meantime, how do we, how do we solve that that issue about, you know, those conflicts. That's one of the things, like that's been a bone of contention for a lot of people is about the inherent conflicts that exist in the industry. When I first started, I remember, I'm thinking, most of the industry is like paid on commission and people expect us to act in the best interest of the consumer, but it's like a structural conflict of interest there. Based on your experience, do you think that we'll ever get to a time where it will be required of financial advisors, like they will legally be required to act in the best interests of advisors, or you think it's going to be like this for like a decade or longer? Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, we are in a way right now where the industry is starting to create transparency through fees, and we're also seeing a, a movement in transparency on titles. So like the financial planning, for instance. Mm. So I'm hoping that it will be then less than a decade. I don't know if it'll be there. I mean, one of my recommendations, if, if someone approaches me, I always recommend, well, I shouldn't say always because I'll get some hate mail on this one. <laughs> it wouldn't be my first time. But I do recommend fee only as a start with a, with a planner to get that objective view. And that usually points them in the right direction of where they should be going. And so that, I just believe that the fee only, um, you will tend not to get, uh, you'll tend to get the best interest of yourself before uh, the advisor guides you down products and so on. Right. Okay. And so uh, getting back to the advisor's perspective on advisor savvy, um, what, what are the, you said there are like three different platforms or tiering of, of services for, yeah, we for advisors? Have, yeah. So we actually have a basic one. And the point around um, the pricing was I kept the pricing fairly reasonable for the advisor the feedback that i received and i talk to a lot of advisors every day that it is fairly reasonable and we have a basic profile which uh, an advisor can put their profile up there and get ratings is free and there is the next tier which we call enhance which is about 21 25 21 dollars a month uh, or 225 a year and then the premium is uh, 35 dollars a month or 420 per year And I've kept it fairly reasonable because I do feel that there is a benefit for the consumer to have choice on advisors. So I didn't want to charge an exorbitant amount of of a fee for the advisor because I want the advisor to feel comfortable to come on at a reasonable rate and um, 
and not be stuck because there are certain advisors. If I was charging a thousand or two thousand, there would only be a certain amount of advisors that could come on because they could afford that. Yeah, then it becomes a pay to play system, right? And it really puts advisors having an awkward position if they don't get the ratings that they want or they don't get the flow of prospects. Having this lower fee, I can bring on more advisors and then more choice for the consumer. Yeah, I think, um, you know, just shooting from the hip, it makes sense to keep costs low to encourage volume in the system because the more advisors that you have on, the more choice that consumers have, hopefully the more ratings you get. And so as more and more people use the system, in theory, the ratings would become more accurate and a better predictor of right. client advisor success. All right. Yeah, that, that that makes sense. And it's funny when you talk to advisors, they're like, no, I don't want anyone else to be on this. I just want me to be on it. And I right. think I think for the benefit for the advisor is, of course, if you have, if you do well in your practice, you'll get good feedback. But also, if you've managed to specialize, you've managed to hone your craft, you'll stand out amongst the crowd. Yeah, it's a, I, I can understand why you don't want, like a, if you're looking at it as, you know, as a marketing, you don't want other people to be on that platform because then you've got more competition. But I would think that you should be able to say, hey, listen, I'm really good at what I do. I'm, I you know compare myself to anyone and, you know, welcome that because that's kind of the whole point is if you really think you are that great, you should have no problem competing um, exactly. with other people. Okay, interesting. What happens if someone complains? Let's say that someone uses um, advisor savvy, they find a, uh, an advisor, and uh, and then they have a complaint. How do you handle that? Because, and I'll tell you why, and this goes back to something that you're saying, the markets are going down. Yep. And, and you ask someone, hey, how is your advisor doing? Let's say that, uh, you know, they've put you into a, a properly constructed portfolio, and your complaint is, you know, I think we should do something and my advisor won't do anything. He's telling me always to stick to the plan, stick to the plan. <laughs> and they get pissed off, right? Because they right. think they should be doing something. I'm paying them. But that yeah. might be a situation where the best thing and the best advice would probably, and it is usually, stick to a plan that was created, assuming yeah. that the plan was a good plan. I would agree. And so they could be upset, even though the advisor's doing what is in their best interests, but the consumer sees it as, you know, this guy isn't doing anything. They're not earning their money because they have it. Maybe they don't know the best way to sort of judge value. So, yeah. and there are other complaints that are legitimate. So how do you handle complaints? Um, and do they get posted to an advisor's profile? How does that work? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think in the consumer, we we don't, we provide a barrier-free uh, site for the consumer and the consumer has the option. We don't ask them to sign up. We don't ask their net worth. We give them the ability to go on the site and they don't necessarily, if they find a couple advisors that they like, they don't necessarily have to connect directly with that advisor. They can follow them through their social feeds. So we believe that if a consumer is not ready to choose an advisor, but they're going through that process, they can follow them on their social feeds and so on. But it's really up to the consumer to make that decision. And if they do have a complaint, we're more than willing to hear about it. But at the end of the day, it is their choice. And they have the choice whether to walk away from the advisor or to stay with them. So in terms of like um, the complaints, though, it's not like, um, you know, hotornot.com or <laughs> or rate my professor where you can just anonymously post no. uh, comments about uh, someone and say, you know, they told me to buy Briex or whatever. <laughs> I'm glad you asked. We actually, to be able to provide the ratings and the feedback, the person must sign in. And we do that for two reasons. One is to protect advisor savvy and one is to protect the advisor. So if there is let's just say, um, feedback that wouldn't be consistent with the advisor, we can always go back to the person who left the rating and understand better where the feedback's coming from. Right. 
So it's kind of a, a an audit on the on the feedback. How long has Advisor Savvy been around? It's relatively new, right? It is. We actually just launched at the end of April. Oh, oh congratulations. I wish you the best of success. Thank you. And I don't know if we talked about it, but a consumer, do they have to pay to use Advisor Savvy or only the advisor? Only the advisor. And the idea is, is that um, the advisor is paying on it. And that's because most of the infrastructure built behind Advisor Savvy is to support advisors. Right. And we wanted the ability to bring consumers in at no cost, again, uh, to be able to find the right advisor. I mean, that's what it's all about mm-hmm. for us. When you were the the big banks. Yes. I'm sure there were some superstar advisors that, you know, made names for themselves inside the institutions and whatnot. What were the things that they did to get that internal recognition to set them apart from other advisors? Yeah, it's unfortunate. I found in a lot of the uh, organizations that I was in, the advisors that got the most bandwidth that I'll say were the ones with the largest books. Uh, Okay. And that's unfortunate because... When you started to dig down on the, the feedback from the consumers, I mean, they obviously had good feedback as well. But the really, really good work where there's an excellent connection between the advisor and the consumer didn't always happen with those uh, large um, advisors that you always hear about or people internally are nervous about because they carry such weight in the organization because they have such large books. Right. And... And that's part of, sorry to interrupt, but that's part of why I built Advisor Savvy is because in those cases where those advisors were well-known internally because they had such, they might not use Advisor Savvy. And the idea is that we provide a level playing field for all advisors. For those um, advisors with really big books of business, I know there's a bit of uh, variation, you know, from bank to bank, but... Oftentimes at the branch level, you know, uh, someone has a regular, you know, daily checking account, all that stuff, and they have a lot of assets, they get referred up to, uh, you know, private wealth or whatever. And so for those advisors with big books, do you have any insight as to how many of them were, you know, just sort of fed these clients versus the ones who are out there making a name and getting people to seek them out or, or what have you? Because, I, I, again, it, it varies from bank to bank from what I've seen. And the thresholds for when the branch level starts to refer clients up has gone up and up and up. It used to be 100000 and then some changed it to yeah. like 400000 Now it's higher and whatnot. So what, you know, where do those clients come from for those big whales? Is it mostly from the bank or is it from their own efforts? Yeah, if they're with a, a bank-owned brokerage, it depends on where they specialize in. Some of them, the larger ones that I've seen, specialize in certain communities. Mm-hmm. So they've they've managed to um, get into a community or they're already within a community and they build out their practice from that community. Uh, there are some who get a lot of internal referrals from within the institution, and that's through the network of other advisors that they've met. Um, it's hard to say whether or not the majority of the large ones is just bank, like bank fed or, but the most successful ones that I've seen with, um, the best client feedback are the ones who've gone out to get the business. Mm -hmm. And you know why? I think it's just because they've worked hard to get that business and they work hard to keep that business. Right. Whereas if the business just came to them, I found in general, they tend to be more laissez-faire about working to uh, improve that relationship with the consumer. Yeah, I know. I'm glad you brought that up, though. Yeah, I know that some uh, firms have instituted uh, different metrics 
for their advisors, where it used to be just, you know, what's the production? Right. And then it was, what's the growth in production? Um, And so there's pressure there. But again, some of these really big advisor and advisory teams, you know, they could be managing over a billion dollars, a couple billion in, in some cases, and they carry a lot of cloud right like internally yeah do the execs are like they're worried about i hope they don't you know cross the street or go somewhere else or take their their clients elsewhere that's a that's an interesting sort of dynamic is that going to change going forward i mean we have the average age of advisors um i haven't looked at in the last little while but when i was in the business as an advisor it was old and getting older every every year are new advisors coming into the banks as financial advisors as much as they used to? I don't think so. And I don't think there's as much of the buying books across different institutions we're seeing that we used to see in the past. Yeah, I do think if you're an advisor within a bank, um, if you're retiring, the bank will take over the portfolio. So you're not seeing that um, that being shopped around as much as you used to see in the past, for sure. And for those, for the bank taking over the portfolio, do they pay out the advisor when they retire? Yeah. Um, I, can't all right, wait, yeah. I can't wait for the hate, ma- hate mail from this episode. <laughs> nah, you won't get, you'll get as much uh, praise as you do hate mail for coming on this podcast. Um, it's good. I mean, this is what people want. This is all about, again, what people want and deserve is transparency about how things work. And the more they know, and the more that people on the other side know that they know, I think it it leads to better outcomes down the road. So we're slowly getting, there's a lot of people, you know, sort of contributing, putting the messages out and trying to peel back the layers to, yeah. to show people how things work. Um, but it's important. And I also find that, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of people understand that people get paid for providing services. Yeah. And there are some channels of advice that are going to be more expensive than others. And if that's the case, you better get more than you better get more value for paying more money. It's as simple as that, right? And if there's a mismatch, then there's going to be uh, people who are unhappy. So the more we peel stuff back, I think the better it is. All right, so the end of every podcast, everyone gets a commercial. So uh, the floor is yours. You can pitch to consumers, advisors, whoever, uh, tell them where to go. Um, (laughs) Floor is yours. So from an advisor perspective, I would love to have Um, advisors who are looking to elevate their practice to the larger Canadian consumer population. And I think for advisors who want to highlight the great work that they're doing in terms of their client base, the work that they're doing in terms of their specialties and the way that they've honed their craft, I think they should join Advisor Savvy. And we are going to be driving consumers who are interested and engaged in their finance. I said before about 50,000 per month. So if Advisors are out there looking for a professional platform that they can update from wherever they are, where they can showcase their practice. Advisor Savvy is definitely the spot that they'll want to be in. Excellent. All right. Well, Saul, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, To my faithful listeners, I'd really appreciate if you could leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or on whichever platform you use for listening to podcasts. That is it for this week. Thank you for listening to Mostly Money. I'm your host, Preet Banerjee. 